Welcome to this week's episode of A Question of Code. Um, we're really lucky this week to be joined by Ellie, and she's going to be talking to us today about internationalization. There's a reason why it's a numerant. <laughs> it happens to everyone. Ellie's originally from Nicaragua and is currently London-based uh, web engineer and speaker um, and works at Monzo. So welcome, Ellie. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. It's obviously such a hard topic that like, we can't even say it. Um, but you're, <laughs> no. you're, Sorry, you're, everyone. <laughs> but, you, but you're something of an expert. Is that right in this? Uh, I like to think so. I've been speaking about it for a bit. So it would be a shame if I weren't at this point. <laughs> I do have to practice saying internationalization before every time, though, still. And I say it in that sort of American way. And then some people try to do it more British. But the truth is no one can really do it. And that's OK. Thank you. I feel I feel much better about myself now. Yeah. <laughs> um, what got you into kind of focusing mainly, well, becoming a specialist in internationalization? Nailed it. Um, so I actually, not in this job, but in a previous job, had to sort of, I got introduced to the concept. We were doing a lot of translations and a lot of multi-currency. Um, and at the time I was going to a ton of sort of like front-end developer conferences. And I've been hearing a lot about accessibility and about like all these frameworks. And exactly zero people had talked about internationalization. And so I was like, I don't know anything about it. And I started Googling and I found out so much stuff that shocked me. I had never heard of that. I was like, I have to make this into a talk. Um, and I did a ton of research at the time. And then it actually worked to apply it in real life for your work, which was really cool. Great. I bet that was, that, as you're learning new things, you can also apply them to your work, which is fantastic. It's nothing that I've ever actually thought about when I've like when I started making my websites. I wasn't really thinking about um, how you would internationalize a suit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a theme. I wasn't thinking about how you'd internationalize a, a website or anything for different languages. I kind of just thought, well, I'm English, so I'm probably going to write it in English. And it seems like a lot of the world's English. Uh, I think I saw in your, you did a talk recently at FutureSync and I saw you, you had some interesting um, numbers on the amount of websites that are actually in English compared to the amount of people who use the internet that speak English. Yeah, so websites are by and far a majority in English, about 60% at this point. And this is like, not like every single website, but like the top billion or something like that. Um, and the, there's no really close second place for languages that websites are in. Like, officially, it's Russian, but it's like 8% versus English 60. Um, but if you compare that to the number of people using the internet, only like a quarter are English speakers. And a lot of people speak English as a second language, of course, which is how the internet remains functional. Uh, but... There are some people who aren't, and that sort of disparity causes some people to get shut out. And this is especially important when you're talking about stuff like financial services or like immigration information, sort of like important life things, mm. rather than like, oh, this is my GIF aggregator or something like that. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, it does happen, and sometimes governments are good at this, so like in the States... A lot of government websites will have like a Spanish version because there's such a high proportion of Spanish speakers in the States. 
in like the double digit percentages. But in the UK, for example, there's not a ton. Sometimes with Welsh, they'll do it. Uh, but there's still something like four and a half million non-English speakers in England. And I mean, this is the home of English. Yeah. So wherever you are, you know, especially the more that people immigrate and settle in other places, that kind of thing. Uh, it happens also a lot with like older people that maybe were the first generation to move somewhere. Uh, and they're probably not as comfortable with the local language, that kind of thing. Um, so it's good to have websites that cater to everyone. Yeah, and I guess that's what internationalization is all about, is making sure that everyone who accesses your website can access it successfully and understand what's on there. Correct. And do you know why it gets, I mean, maybe we've demonstrated why it gets shortened down to I-18N, but this seems like quite a, when people talk about it, that they, they do the I-18N thing. <laughs> yes, internationalization is a long word. It is a <laughs> difficult word. Um, much like accessibility, uh, we use the abbreviation I-18N, which is called a numeronym, which is sort of any number-based word. In particular, that one is you take the number of words between the first and the last, and then you add them up, and then that's the number you use, which is not the most intuitive thing, but once you learn it, a lot of more acronyms on the internet become clear. So, like, accessibility is A11Y, localization is L10N, which also sort of spells lion, which is cool. Um, I've also seen it used a lot with the the investment firm, Andresine Horowitz, yeah. is a A16Z. Ah, I just yeah. didn't, didn't know it was quite as simple as just counting the numbers. I, yeah. For some reason, when I saw it, I8, it's kind of it's a bit like internationalization and like the eights, like almost like an O. I don't <laughs> well, for accessibility, I always thought it made more sense because it sort of spells ally, and I thought that was just like a cute thing that somebody yeah. had come up with. But then when you see I18N, you're like, that's not quite right, <laughs> is it? So that is the big secret behind these abbreviations. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it does seem like uh, internationalization is a bit of a, a problem um, in terms of it being catered to in different websites. Do you, is, that, is it just a really hard thing to do? I know I've, um, re I've only come across it in one of my projects where I think we were translating from English to Japanese. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that this is probably a really the simple part of it, but that you just need like the space will be different where the text is. It's just something I'd never thought about, I, I guess. That's a hard part of it, but I guess there are a lot of other things that make it quite tricky. First of all, a lot of people just won't even think about it. Yeah. Like, it's not even on the checklist of, like, things to do when you make a website. Usually it's just, like, make it. Uh, who's going to read it? People locally. Well, then English, right? Uh, there's a famous, I, I can't remember the name of it now, where it's, like, assumptions developers make. And the list is very long, and it's often incorrect. Uh, another is just because of sort of like effort, buy-in, that kind of thing, like how much you put in versus how much you get out. So maybe something like a travel website will have much more chance of getting internationalized than maybe like a local bakery site, that kind of thing. Um, 
I also think a part of it is just lack of information and lack of sort of like mainstreaminess. Because you can become a developer. I mean, I did. I did school, I did jobs, and I spent years being a developer without ever having to even touch internationalization. Mm-hmm. It's just not really put front and center in the industry in general. And then there's some people who are really good at it, your Netflixes and your Airbnbs and that kind of thing. But you have to get into one of those companies to get exposed and then sort of spread it around virus style. So are there different approaches that you could take to tackling the problem? Is it kind of one, is there one solution that fits all all kind of websites? Um, definitely not. I think it's not so much different approaches as it is different amounts of how internationalized a site is. Um, a lot of the time, if your site maybe isn't that big or it's very local, uh, you could maybe translate it to one other language that is most common, for example. I see that a lot in places like the Netherlands and Denmark and Germany, where a lot, a lot of people have English as a second language. Um, and it's sort of their local languages are, is a language that's like not spoken anywhere else. So often when you go on one of their sites, they'll have like a switch to English button, uh, which has saved me many, many times. Um, but it's, I mean, it's not just translation, right? It's stuff like currency dates, times, character sets. So like the basic, for example, is just making sure that your forms can accept any Unicode character. So like my last name has an umlaut in it and I've broken forms before where they're like, sorry, you can't sign up to the service because you have an invalid character. And even if you don't translate, you could still accept sort of like diacritics and umlauts. Having good inputs is like sort of the baby version. And then having maybe one translation is a little more and then fully doing the dates, the times and the currencies. You can take it really far. (laughs) We've definitely been on the the wrong side of forms not accepting uh my wife has an ear cute in her name and we have lots of membership cards for things with like it'll start her name and then there'll just be a square in the middle of an unfound character (laughs) nightmare (laughs) comes up a lot (laughs) well it's especially frustrating when it's something that has to be like your legal name or your passport name like what is one supposed to do if your legal passport name has a character or a diacritic or even apostrophes some places don't take apostrophes. It's a nightmare for the Irish. Like, yeah, crazy. So it's it's quite a it is quite an important feature that maybe a lot of people are missing out on there. Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of the time it will come down to to money, won't it? Like, where is your audience, and who are you? Who who is paying for the stuff that you're doing? If if, if they're in different languages, you you're leaving money on the table if you don't support that. A hundred percent. I think some of the best probably examples of internationalization are probably driven by operating in new markets and revenue and that sort of stuff. We still, I mean, still a lot of work to do. I think people are a lot better now with making accessibility a first-class citizen on the web. And so the more we can inch internationalization in as part of that, maybe. I mean, it's worth noting also that stuff like in-browser, like Google Translate is getting better by the minute. So we're now at a point where like 
you can get the gist of it, sort of, if you are using a browser that has a built-in translation. So that's at least bridging a small gap. Because let's be honest, Google Translate isn't like perfect yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially when it comes to like the context of your app or your website. Uh, there's obviously a lot of words that are like written the same, but mean different things in different contexts, like read and read, but maybe in another language, they're two different words. Which one do you pick? That kind of thing. Um, so that's, I think that's probably another reason why people don't really prioritize it as much. They're like, oh, but they can just Google translate it, but it's never quite right. It's not the same experience. And I think if you want to have a good user experience, it should be localized to that market or language or region. So touching on the, like the automatic stuff that happens for free in the browser and all using Google translate. I've often found with particularly accessibility coding and like doing tab indexes and things, as soon as you start, like you can go too far if you're not going to go all the way. You can make a small change with good intentions and actually make the experience worse for a lot of people. Like if you start messing around with ARIA roles or tab index is the, the, main, yeah. the main one. If you get that, you just think, oh, I'll just, I'll just bump the tab index here and, and help someone out. No, you've ruined their entire day because now your entire site is a mess to them. Is there an... A parallel to that with internationalization? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm not sure it necessarily works quite the same way. There's definitely a couple of sort of like common pitfalls. So for example, uh, trying to guess what language your user speaks based on things like IP address or browser headers is sort of a common, I guess not mistake, but it's sort of not very accurate of a guess. Um, I mentioned in my talk a lot that you should always let a user pick their own locale or their own language because you never know what someone's situation is, what their background is, what their sort of like residency situation is. Um, and so for example, if you're traveling to a country where you don't speak the language, it doesn't necessarily mean that you, your location determines what language you want something in. Um, so always making, if you do have a multi-language site, it's important to make it very obvious where to change that. Ideally, even you would remember that in like a user setting or a cookie or something like that. Um, and then also there's details like, for example, the fact that languages don't have a one-to-one -one mapping with flags and a lot of people, and also flag designs aren't like common knowledge necessarily. A lot of people will be like, choose your language. And it's just like a drop down of flags <laughs> or like four flags and you have to pick the correct one. And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't sign up for pub quiz. What is this? <laughs> and you get, get into hot water if someone's put sort of Chinese Taipei or something in there and there's like political disputes between what oh, flag yeah. is allowed. And, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then there's stuff like, Sometimes people will say, okay, well, here's a list where to switch your languages, but I've written the name of every language in the language the website is currently in. So it's like, I don't know how to say like Spanish in Dutch, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, use the language you're describing to write the language on the list, stuff like that. It's, it, it, it can fall through the cracks really easily. Just based on like assumptions that 
you don't really even think about. So at its most fundamental level, is internationalizing a site a question of finding every string of text on the site and having an alternate for it? Is that is that the the goal? Is that how it works? Yes and no. Yes, uh, that is like the base of the pyramid. Uh, that is the easiest way to get started. That is sort of like the main chunky bit of it. Take your strings and then you can have different language files and then point your strings to each language file and then switch between them, etc. Um, a couple things that come with that is also like the design of your site. So like in some languages, words are really long, like in German. And in some languages, words are really short, like in Chinese. And so a lot of the time your site will break in a different language because there's either not enough room or there's too much room or just like flexible layout wrapping, that kind of thing. So the changing all the strings in your website or app comes also with the responsibility of making sure that different lengths or even currencies. If you change currencies, if it's like a really inflated currency, the size of the number, it could be a lot longer for the same sort of monetary amount. So like 20 pounds could be like hundreds or thousands in another currency. And does your design account for that? So that's, it's sort of the main way. And then there's also other considerations like are your dates formatted correctly? That kind of thing. So, so I think uh, we can decide, we've all agreed that it's a, a very important thing to do. I wonder if there are some kind of, where do we? Where do people go to actually learn how to internationalize their uh, their websites or their apps? Yes, um, I would say the W three C, which has a ton of information about web and standards, has this really long page full of links and resources, and I'll send it to you so you can link to it. Yeah, uh, with tutorials about. Anything from like strings to dates to times to stuff like character encoding and writing systems. So that's a really good place to start. Um, internationalization is one of those things that has been pretty well standardized on the web. And it's sort of like revised often because it's the kind of thing where like everyone in the world needs to agree about sort of like certain universal truths about languages and formats and dates and times. So those places, the so the W3C and also the Unicode Consortium has a lot of good resources about how to internationalize, what to think about, what are some of the standards. I think those are two really good um, starting points. I definitely use them a ton when I was doing the research for my old job and also for the talk I gave um, at a conference. So that would be my go-to. There's also increasingly more and more good sort of like blog posts and articles. Uh, Netflix has had a really good blog post a couple of years ago about the concept of pseudo-localization, which is where you like fake a language using, uh, by like taking in like an English word and adding a bunch of special characters to it to both lengthen it and test that your encoding is right. Um, and then using that to test when you're developing or when you're designing. Uh, it's really interesting. I recommend. Yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll find a link to that and pop it in the show yeah, notes definitely. as well. 
if we're aiming this at this advice at people who are brand new to the field who are just getting into into doing internationalization on their websites is it worth at this stage outlining some of the technological options is is that too into the weeds do you think i mean the main thing i want to like when i first had to translate a site and i sort of like download the the library that will help me translate this thing this is fantastic it took me a good like a lot longer than it should have done to realize that that actually didn't do the translating for me that just handled the switching of things that really caught me out are there any can you think of gotchas that new people will come across and what sort of technological solutions are available yeah, I think especially if you're just learning how to make websites, for example, it really helps to try and take a step back and do a little bit of research on just how the internet works in general. So one thing that I was always confused about was like, how does my website know every single language, that kind of thing, when in reality is that you're serving a completely different site depending on which language you request from your server, which is where all your files live. Um, Otherwise, you would have these giant app bundles that would take ages to download on a browser and people would never see your site. It would just be a giant loading spinner forever. Um, So that helped me a lot is sort of understanding like what you ask for and then what you get back uh, when you have different versions of your website in different languages. Um, The other thing, and this is, I'm not sure if this is just for people who are learning to code or to develop websites, but also for people who are new to the concept of internationalization in a website. So this is also helpful for like designers, product managers, anyone working in a company that wants to get into it is that the logistics of localization are really hard. Especially if you're a developer that's used to like write some code, see the local example, looks great, ship it. Because when you translate, you have to write the code and then find out what all the strings are, send them off to a translator. Uh, If you have multiple languages, it's different translators. It could be a translation service, an agency, You could have translators in your company if it's really big. But the time it takes to get those back could be a lot longer than you're used to expecting going from code to live. And then you also need to be good at communication because you need to share with your translators the context of your app. So a lot of the times it's helpful to send screenshots of where the strings will go, especially in web there's a lot of sort of one word action words like unbutton sign up continue cancel and it's quite hard to get those also into one word in other languages Um, so sometimes what you have to do is compromise and not do a direct translation but just translate into something that conveys the same meaning so it's always going to be a lot of back and forth And it's a bit of a change of pace from the development that most people learn to be used to. Yeah, I I always thought, well, like Tom said earlier, I thought you you just imported a package and then it kind of just, once you've written in English, that package does all the translation for you. I'm running this, but I've said I want it in French, but there's nothing coming out. It's the same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I guess if you've got a website in maybe a hundred different languages and you're trying to release a new feature, that's going to be quite a tricky thing in terms of do you display your whole website in this new language and that just this new feature that you've put in doesn't have those translations or do you wait for all hundred people to do the translations? I guess that can become quite a tricky thing. Like you're talking about the logistics of it. Yeah, it gets quite tricky. There are services now that will sort of do that for you a little bit easier for, well, for a price always. But there's this thing called a translation memory where it'll sort of keep your old strings in store and if it sees something that's the same, it will remember it. And I think now people are trying to get sort of machine learning in there so that it can like help fill in your translations a little more automatically without needing a human to do it every single time. Because a lot of translations are just like email, address, name, if you're working on a form, or like yes, no, or like accept, deny. And so that kind of thing can get stored in a translation memory. And if you use it again, you don't have to get it retranslated again. So there's definitely options out there, but it it's still not like a seamless, super fast operation. Yeah. Um, and I think that's another thing that puts people off from getting into it is just the logistics are hard. That's a, that's a nice segue as well into uh, something that's caught me out before. With, when getting things translated is we're sending things off to a cert. We have a nice service that we use who, who will give us back all the, our core languages that we need. We can they have a quick turnaround, so that's pretty good. But we also think about sort of batching those requests. And I get tempted, or certainly was tempted in the early days, to think, oh, well, if there's fewer things to be translated, then it will be quicker and easier. So let's try and generalise as much as I can. And maybe I don't need to... Like, I've, I've got, like... Um, sign up as a as a thing on my site and then later on i've got sign up now um as a as a separate tag i can i can break that up into two different things and i can reuse that sign up down there um and it didn't quite work out how i was hoping um <laughs> does that can you see where i'm getting getting yeah, out of this? it often doesn't this is i want to say the most common thing i've seen because uh, when I when I was doing a lot of translation, I had quite a big dev team. It was like 30 or 40 people working on like the same site in the same room at the same time. Uh, developers are taught generally to reuse code and to try to avoid repeating themselves. The famous dry acronym, don't repeat yourself, is sort of like tattooed on the butt cheek of every developer. <laughs> Um, and like drilled into your brain. Uh, in translations, it's entirely the opposite. Uh, language structures and the grammar of languages around the world are so different, especially in the order of sort of like verbs, adjectives, nouns. Some languages put them at the beginning, some languages put them at the end. So when you try to put two strings together, because you're like, oh, well, I'll take the translation for sign up and then add the translation for now, that doesn't that wouldn't work in maybe even one language if you're lucky. Um, and a lot of developers, when they write their strings, they're like, "It's fine. I will just take this word and add this preposition, and add this other thing. And then if it's multiple things, I'll throw an and in there that's hard coded, and that quickly breaks down. Uh, and strings, when they get sent off to translation, should always be a full sentence." Uh, to avoid any cross-language incompatibilities. 
Um, and that's pretty hard to get your mind around, but once you know, you can never unsee it. <laughs> I'm telling you, once you <laughs> grasp that basic rule and you see someone like with a plus sign trying to add two strings, you go, stop, no, <laughs> this is not good for internationalization. I suppose that are there other considerations when you're trying to do like dynamic things like maybe show a price in a sentence for instance um oh, where, yeah. yeah where you need to you need to drop in things dynamically so you would almost kind of instinctively be concatenating some strings there to make that happen yeah um, there's sort of like three or four basic things that you need to sort of dynamically generate that are important in localization one is plurals so like you have one new message or you have multiple new messages uh, the other is um, dates and like you mentioned currencies because not only is it dynamic but it also needs to look different for different locales so a locale is like a combination of a language and a region so, for example, in, say, Spain, the thousand separator is a period instead of a comma. Uh, and if you're truly localizing, you would show someone that's seeing your Spanish version uh, the currency with a period instead of a comma instead of a thousand separator. Um, dates, if you're doing sort of like a Europe versus America situation, the month, the order of months and days swap around which has been the cause of many a missed transatlantic video call, I'm sure. <laughs> I think I've um, made that mistake yeah. quite a few times. <laughs> we've, definitely, we've definitely had some bug reports from, from angry clients who are, were upset not to see the AM and PM on their times as well. Uh, yeah, 24 yeah. hour is also regional. Um, so not only dynamic, but also localizable. Um, the good news is that there are a couple actually of a string writing formats you can use. So there's one which I used and is sort of one of the most common uh, called ICU, which is maintained by Unicode, which gives you a couple of tools with like templating where you can plug in variables and they'll get formatted correctly. So if you wanted to like personalize a message with a person's name, you could say, oh, welcome to my site, comma, and then like the variable of that person's preferred name, for example. Um, and then that also has tools for dates, currencies, pluralizations, that kind of thing. Um, so there is method to the madness. Um, and there's definitely the like translators will generally know how to work with that format too. So they'll know how to shift around that variable so that it still makes grammatical sense in the language they're translating into. Um, so it's definitely something that the translator should do and stuff that the library should do and not something you should do. So there's a lot, there's a lot, of, uh, weight, there's a lot of benefit you get from having a good like, a translation service or a translator who like, understands JSON and knows where to, like, how to put a variable in a string. That's a... Enthusiastic, yes. <laughs> definitely. Um, I think which is also why a lot of these services sort of make sense because they sort of like if it's a service that is used to dealing with either like a website or an app, they'll also have people there that have that sort of tech context 
versus someone who translates like novels, for example, might not work quite as well. So you've got to be careful when you're uh, choosing your translators. Yeah. So it's not just technical, it's also logistics. Brilliant. I would say as just sort of like universal tips for internationalization is to the, is the the hard part of internationalization is molding your site to fit every different possible like language that you want to include but it's not it's a lot more work to retrofit internationalization into a site than it is to build it with internationalization in mind so i would urge anyone who's starting a new project um to try and see if they can include internationalization in there so for example make your strings templates instead of hard-coded right off the bat uh, and then that'll save you, if you do decide down the line to translate your site, it'll save you ages of pain. Same with design. If you design with internationalization in mind, you won't run into the issue of, oh, this long word doesn't fit, or like this long currency doesn't fit, I have to redesign my whole app, or I can't internationalize it. So I would say start early if you can, because the upfront cost at the beginning is low compared to the cost of retrofitting it. Great, it's a great tip. Yeah, it's excellent advice. Yeah, this has been a card on our this this topic to do a podcast about since I think we've had it in the database since about June. I think we've known it's been really important, but neither of us are particularly qualified to dispense yeah. good bits of wisdom <laughs> about it. Can't even say it. <laughs> well, hopefully by the end of this, that'll change. Yeah. Just yeah. Two experts. <laughs> yeah, starting to feel more like an expert already. The the advice you've you've given has been fantastic. So, Eddie, would you mind just telling us, uh, as a final question, your three top tips for uh, new developers or people changing career? Yes. Okay, so my first two are a little bit at odds with each other, but they're both true. One is that you should practice the skill of troubleshooting, especially via Google. Um, you laugh, but I spend <laughs> so much of my job Googling things. And I think that's such an important muscle to flex in a technical context to be able to say, okay, I have a problem. And before I go, just ask someone about it. I want to try to Google it and read up on it and solve it on my own. And then you start sort of identifying like which code is more copy-pastable than other code. Um, so that's one, is get good at Google troubleshooting for code. Um, two, which sort of contradicts that entirely, but it's also true, is try to get real human help with your learning. Um, I A lot of the time, especially if you're sort of like teaching yourself how to code or how to make websites, there's a lot of really good resources online. Uh, there's free and paid resources. Um, but sometimes you get stuck and you waste all this time. And a lot of time it's just because maybe you're missing big picture context or maybe there's an element that you just haven't encountered entirely. Uh, and sometimes hearing someone else explain it helps you create this mental model of how stuff works. Yeah. So once in a while, and then there's, 
at least, for example, in the UK, there are a lot of community events that'll let you come and get tutored for a bit for free. Obviously, you know, now it's all virtual, but one day. <laughs> we'll be out there eventually. <laughs> we'll be out there back with the in-person teachings. I've found it very helpful personally. Um, and then, which is a segue onto my third one, which is the communities I find are really important both for learning the technical bits and also sort of like career stuff, jobs, growth, progression, that kind of thing. Um, I much rather call it community than networking, but it's a potato <laughs> potato situation in this case. Um, I personally have found knowing people in the industry super valuable, even just to like chat about a new technology and like then you find out stuff that's new or that's updated like hot topics you can learn stay relevant a lot of tech is keeping up to date with the new thing yeah. um, or the updated thing uh, and sometimes having a good network or a good community uh, can help with that exposure yeah that, that's something i definitely found when when i was learning it's like we have a local meetup group in cornwall and going there to help me kind of find out about companies in the area and like you say yeah. and tech that you haven't heard of before so you wouldn't have heard of it any other way than than getting involved yeah so yeah those are my tips fantastic well ellie thanks a lot for coming on the podcast i've i've learned so much about internationalization Nailed it. yeah i'm getting there um it, beyond just being able to say it a bit better now um lots of new tips that i'll go and have a go at trying out um even though i don't know necessarily anyone who could translate them but i can have a go at kind of thinking about the sorts of things that you said about like making sure you do repeat yourself that was quite an interesting one um i, I was thinking um so yeah so thanks thanks a lot for coming on thanks so much for having me i've had a great time um, and we, I think, will leave some links in the show notes for people to learn more. Yes, yeah, all the things we've mentioned in the show, we'll get them in the show notes. So have a look there if you want to go and explore more. Um, if people want to reach out to you, Ellie, is there a, where's the best place for them to do that online? Twitter. Yay. <laughs> On Twitter, constantly at Ellie Belly, and it's Ellie E L I because it's in Spanish. Uh, e L I Belly, like your stomach. Awesome. <laughs> So thanks a lot for listening to this week's uh, episode of A Question of Code. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at AQOCode. And you can find us online at aqoc.dev or aquestionofcode.com. Uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks to Ali for being such a fantastic guest. And do please tell your friends about the show. It really helps spread the word. Um, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Cool.